0: Here of Bad Sex, written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Part 24 One night during that summer of 2019 that Oliver stayed with me, he came to bed and he wasn't wearing a T-shirt or boxers. Given the scalp-roping progress on the sofa, I thought it wouldn't cause offence if I rested a hand on his perfect buttock. However, in the morning, he referred to waking up and finding you groping my bum. Not great. Another night I returned to bed after going for a pee. The heat of the night had caused him to push the duvet off his body, exposing those small, neat, pale buns. I bent to give them a kiss, but it startled him, and he woke like a shot, shouting loudly, What, what, what is it? His reaction shocked me. I felt as if I'd abused him, and I sunk away, mortified, vowing never to make any physical contact with him again, ever. The mixed messages continued. One afternoon I went into the bedroom and found him drying after a shower. I ran my hand over his back and bum and legs for a few seconds, then halted and apologised. No, he said, I'm appreciating the caresses. So I continued... Pressing and straying, fingers probing a little, not too much. He let little moans escape his lips. But he didn't say actual words of encouragement, or move a limb, or shift his weight, or, God forbid, lay a finger on me. Oliver went to Paris for a few days to visit his cousin. It presented me with the opportunity to book a few men in for massage and more, if I wanted to. But I didn't have the interest. My energy had refocused into totally different areas the areas of emotion and affection. Sex was great, sometimes, and sex with strangers was wonderfully easy to engage with and to disengage from. But these few weeks with Oliver had been touching deeper parts of me, those parts I had consciously put out of reach from others and from myself. My heart is not available. I would meant it. But now, spending this time in close proximity to someone my heart had been devoted to for a year after topsy-turvy year, This was the old stuff again, but newly felt. The past returning to the present, history regurgitated. Was it also hinting at a future, one too dimly glimpsed to provide certainty? The stark contrasts between us had also been emphasized anew. I had made such tenacious efforts to re engage with life in the past couple of years. My heart had been broken by Oliver's departure, then my spirit crushed by the accident. With support, I'd begun to build a life again, different from before, and, yes, somewhat ramshackle. But what life isn't? We make it up as we go along. We are all work in progress, doing our best with the circumstances and with our own inner resources. I'd become someone who was always engaged with life, busy with people, events, groups, shows, sex, and so on. Oliver's apparent lack of curiosity, keenness, or need for physical contact—from me, anyway— highlighted an old gulf between us, one we had once been able to bridge. But now, I thought, the differences were too great. We probably needed to let each other go so we could each fulfil our own potential. I loved him so much. We would always have the past, but we couldn't live there. While Oliver was in Paris, I attended Pride. Had he left London deliberately that week, so he wouldn't have to push back my invitation to join in, the fact that even occurred to me speaks volumes. He removed himself, and thereby the likelihood of tension, annoyance, disappointment, and resentment. Well, good for him. I strutted out in my pink wig, pink headdress, pink tutu, pink nails, pink beard, and massive rainbow flag, with the words, Gay, Gorgeous, and Single, carefully ironed on. I felt great. In my element, I loved being on display, exposed. I have always found comfort and strength where others might feel vulnerable. When I was around six, I'd been the only one in our gang who'd risen to the dare to take off all my kit one day in the woods. The others grabbed my shirt, shorts, m and fronts and black plimsolls, and ran off giggling, thinking I'd be angry or upset. Not at all. I was perfectly happy being naked among the trees, lying on soft emerald moss and crisp brown leaves, awaiting their return." Whenever I've had dreams of being nude in public, the accompanying emotions have never been of panic and alarm, but ease and calm. The crowds at Pride were incredible. One and a half million, apparently. Such warmth, respect and love. I had my photograph taken by loads of people and even made a couple of camp videos, something to do with an extraterrestrial pink fairy arriving on earth, lost and afraid. I know. Don't ask. It was amazing to see toddlers in arms shouting, happy pride, and holding up their hands to be high-fived. No such thing in my day. Now it's no big deal to hear younger men talk about their husbands and a desire to have children. There's much further to go, of course, but we've come a long way, baby, and I love being a tiny part of that progress. The post-pride slump was to be expected. From hyped up to regular is no more than a return to the status quo, but it felt like a slide down a no-hope slope into a trough of despair. I convinced myself that Oliver was definitely having great sex with someone, several people, in Paris. Of course he was. It was obvious. And he had no sexual desire for me. That was obvious too. I went to try to buy clothes, but was disconsolate and couldn't focus. When I looked at my body in the changing-room mirror, I saw a fat, ridiculous old man. I handed all the clothes back and left the shop, dragging my feet home. Did Oliver have sex with anyone in Paris? I don't know. When he returned to London, I didn't ask him, because I realised it didn't matter if he did or didn't. That wouldn't change my feelings for him. We drove to our cottage in Norfolk. It was a wonderful bolt hole we'd enjoyed so much. This was his first visit for many years, but we slotted quickly and easily into the old routines shopping, cooking, walking on the beach, TV, gardening, especially gardening. Oliver liked nothing better than attacking a defenceless shrub with secateurs and hacking it to within a centimetre of its life, or pruning, as he called it. At bedtime I pointed out there were two bedrooms, and that I hadn't assumed we'd share a bed. Oliver said that for him it was a purely practical matter, there would be fewer sheets to change on our departure if we shared a bed. "'Oh, come on!' I could hear Jeremy Paxman sneering as a politician tried to slip another whopper past him. "'It's not just a matter of laundry. This is about contact and emotions, isn't it, Minister? Admit it, we're talking about sex.' But I'm no Paxo. I didn't challenge his reasoning. I was simply grateful to get that answer. And there was contact. By now we were both used to being naked in the night—me too, ever since I was a teenager— and the double bed in Norfolk was narrower than the king-size version in London, so contact there was. One-way contact. I stroked and then even kissed his lovely bum. It was small and neat, discreet and sweet. He lay there, uncomplaining, and I dared to venture further, deeper. At night I was permitted gradually more and more access. A touch, a stroke, massaging different parts of him, fingers exploring resting my head on his buttocks, kissing each cheek, putting my face in it. I was never turned away, but at no point was there a response indicative of his desire, his urge to reciprocate. He allowed it. What he didn't do was shift his legs to give me better access, offer his cock, reach for mine, turn over to kiss and be kissed. He didn't partake. He lay there passive, compliant and uncomplaining, but uninvolved. So what did that make me? In one of our daytime conversations about the possibilities of our sex life now, I'd said, perhaps disguised as flippancy, I'll do as much as I can get away with. But these were dangerous areas. Was Oliver balancing his own temptation with fear of causing me offence? I was balancing much the same. I would get to that point of realising I'm humiliating myself now, and I would stop before being told to. How I was still convincing myself there could be any return to a relationship, I don't know. There was love, clearly, a deep and mutual love. But what kind of bond would it be without physical passion? And while I still fancied the boxes off Oliver, he obviously could keep his hands off me. He was not playing balls. I felt so sad to admit that I had to relinquish all claims on him of partner, boyfriend, or husband. It would have to be my ex.' Or my friend. The most accurate description would be well, it's complicated. We talked about life mine, his, ours. Oliver became quite tearful when speaking about his own and how much he wanted to paint, even though he hadn't yet managed to build that activity into his daily routine at all. By leaving me he had created his independence, but he didn't seem able to claim it and inhabit it. We could buy a chateau in France, I said. You can paint, and I can write. I meant it. That sounds perfect, he said. I've thought about that so many times. A pause. Should I leave that sketch of perfection shimmering in our imaginations? That much seemed eminently plausible to me. All it required were money and courage— And there were ways of accessing both. Or should I push for more detail on the picture? I had to. But, I said, what about the... the physical side of things, allowing my frustration to bubble to the surface? If we don't have a sex life, are we supposed to find someone in the local village who's versatile? Bottom for me and top for you? I was serious, but he bridled at what he saw as my frivolity, my cruelty in demolishing his fantasy. I needed to know, though, what precisely did he want from me, with me? To visit and laugh and spoon with me in bed, but no more? That would never be enough. In another week he'd be leaving again, and then I had no idea. I would return to expressing my sexual needs with a series of young men, but, after the lessons of my six weeks with Oliver, would I find that I was available to others in a deeper way, that I had disengaged from the great love of my life? Had the emotional Velcro detached, tiny tooth by tiny tooth, liberating my heart to a state of availability? Or would it just be more random shagging? Back in London we had a few final days together. We both felt the impending ending, but nothing was made explicit. On one of those days I was in the sitting-room when he emerged from bed and walked naked past me to the kitchen. I gazed at his big cock and spectacularly pendulous balls. My boys! Just to let you know, I said in as prosaic a manner as I could, I will have to pop those in my mouth before you leave. They're very salty with sweat right now, he said, and headed to the bathroom. After his shower he came back, naked again, and shimmering with droplets of water. He stood close to me and said, They're clean now, and tastier. I leaned forward, pulled my boys to my lips, and sucked on them. Oh, wonderful, gorgeous, beautiful but it was only brief, and too jokey to be erotic. Our final days were disappearing. Then Oliver would disappear too. One of those precious days was spent on a bus trip to visit his aunt. As he set off, we shared a hug. A warm and tight hug, not a brief, dismissive, fleeting thing. As our cheeks pressed against each other, he said quietly, "'I'm sorry.' "'For what?' "'I'm sorry that I left, and everything.' "'It's okay.' I was touched by the words, so simple, so few, so true and so powerful. It was heartbreaking, I said, but I always understood you needed your independence. I moved my head to be able to make eye contact. I do love you very much, you know. I do too, he said, managing not to say the word love. It occurred to me for, oh, about the millionth time, How different we were. Perhaps compatibility was never really on the cards. We'd both have had to compromise too much to have abandoned our individual identities. We'd agreed that neither of us could imagine ourselves in another long-term relationship with commitment and the confident sense of a future. Oliver said he could see himself in short affairs of a month or two. I could only see one-off flings for me. With nice guys, good enough for a few hours of fun, but not—not love. No, no. "'I don't know what this is now,' I said. "'This relationship. "'But it's not bitterness. "'It's still love.' "'He didn't reply. "'He left to get his coach. "'These things needed to be said. "'No, I needed to say them. "'He came back late that evening from his visit. "'It hadn't been a success. "'He was ruffled and discombobulated, "'needing to vent for a while. "'I made him something to eat and listened.' It was genuinely a pleasure to hold the space for him. Once more, we talked about jobs, careers, life, choices, and so on. Oliver paused, made a visible change of mental gear, and said quietly, I think my happiest time was when I was with you. I really messed that up, didn't I? My heart melted, but I couldn't show him that. I said something emollient and reasonable, something like, You needed to go, I understood that. It wasn't easy for either of us, but we have this this amazing relationship. My heart is full of love, not anger or blame. How very reasonable of me, how mature, how wise. I meant it. I also wanted to wail, Why did you leave me? Oliver said, I don't think I've been very fair. How do you mean? Fair to you. Staying all this time, sharing the bed, and not letting you, you know. Again I said it was fine, I accepted it, blah, 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 and the silent accompaniment went, I have no idea what you want, I suspect you don't either, you allow me to do these things to you, but you do nothing to me or with me. When had I lost my voice? That night in bed I snuggled up to him. As light began to peep through the crack in the blinds, and the 5 a.m. rubbish lorry paused in the street to empty the big wheeled bins from the student accommodation, I held my boys for a few precious minutes. This was the deal now. But then I stepped beyond the established boundary. I squeezed his cock, felt it swell and grow until it reached those astonishing proportions I remembered. I ducked under the duvet and fed it down my throat I swallowed it deep and felt that curious excitement of being suffocated. Just a few seconds. Then I removed it. It was on Oliver's final day in London that I eventually got an answer to my two questions. Had he been faithful, and did he think we could ever get back together? These were hugely important, but the longer they'd been unanswered, the more vital their significance loomed. Yes, he said, in reply to my repeat of question one. Yes, I was faithful. That was all I needed. No expansion or further interrogation. The simplicity helped. It always does. The second wasn't simple. He'd been to see an old friend of his while he'd been in London, and she had asked him what many others had. Do you think, you and Jonty? And his answer to her had been, I can imagine us in five years buying a big house together where I could paint and he could write. I told him, yes, I can imagine that too. It sounds lovely.' It was something we'd often talked about. We shared a shy smile. Had something new been tentatively offered, tentatively accepted, and tentatively agreed? Several weeks earlier, when we'd been sitting in the secret garden in Regent's Park, he'd shown me a photo of someone called Edward. He did it with caveats and provisos. As long as it doesn't seem weird or hurt you. How could I know until I'd seen it? He showed me. I looked. It was neither hurtful nor weird edward looked okay not sexy now he returned to the subject of sex between us the oddness of just sex with me he said after sex with other men was that what it would be for him i explained that for me it would be so much more it would be an expression of the depth of our feelings my feelings for him, a recognition of all that we shared, the joy and the misery, the mistakes and forgiveness, the delights and disasters created and survived. That could never be just sex for me. Now the subject had been broached, I told him a bit about some of the men I had been hooking up with. I told him it was never just sex. There had always been more, a drink, a talk, a laugh, a massage, a discussion of Algerian politics, a coupling that, however brief, was often more than superficial. I reminded him that by claiming his own autonomy he'd bequeathed me the opportunity to rediscover my own. And we'd both done that, although not in the same way, or at the same pace. We'd both begun to build new people and new experiences into our lives. Did the road already bifurcated, run as parallel paths, continue to diverge, or even rejoin as one carriageway? How would it work? I don't know. I just thought... Question two had been answered, but what had been offered? Tender but anodyne companionship? A friend who'd lived through all my falling in love, being together, splitting up, living in limbo stages, asked how I felt with Oliver staying. How do I feel? I struggled to define it. Um, sad, calm, grateful, happy, confused, strong, curious, accepting. Ah, yes, she said. The Germans have a word for that, a very long word. A couple of days before he was due to leave, Oliver asked me if there were villages near London with a railway station where he could buy a big house for painting and writing. I said, of course there were, and listed some. I sensed a straw being clutched, but no more was said about it. On Oliver's final day, I woke to find I was alone. He'd already slipped silently from the bed, denying us, consciously, I suspect, a final naked cuddle. Dangerous things, cuddles. They could lead anywhere. He'd heard from an ex-colleague about a job he'd been suitable for, and was busy sending off yet another application and tweaked CV. The job was not in London. I wrote a dedication in a book I'd bought for him, the latest by David Sedaris. Oliver wasn't much of a reader, to be honest, more inclined to pursue visual interests than literary. But I'd introduced him to Armistead Morpin years before, and he'd had many happy hours meeting Michael Tolliver, Marianne Singleton, and a Madrigal, et al. I hoped he'd get into the Sedaris family in the same way. There were final, final goodbyes and hugs. Very few words. Nothing left unsaid. Apart from, don't leave me again. My heart was shattered. It's almost mended now. Please don't go. Was I not good enough? Still not. What can I do to make it better? Make us better. Tell me. What I did tell him was how beautiful he'd looked at five a.m., spread-eagled, face down on the bed, the duvet pushed away on the sultry July night. That sweet bum, I said, my boy's bulging between your thighs. I'd looked at him, marvelling at his physical grace and hoping to sear it on my mind. But I hadn't touched him this time fearful of triggering any kind of negative response. A couple of days earlier there had been a two-cheeks kiss, then the lips, and very, very briefly he had pushed his tongue into my mouth, as if to say, what, that he did feel something for me, something sexual, but he felt he shouldn't? Or what? I had no idea. However, I was in no doubt that the overall feeling was of love, of honesty and compassion. Yes, confusion and complexity, too. We loved each other very much, there is no doubt of that. I told him exactly that several times over this magical summer. I do love you very much. Oliver had replied, I love you, too. Or, so do I, stressing the words as if worried that I may not be aware of his love. I was, I am, and I clutch it closely to my heart. It was time. He ordered his Uber. We went downstairs. The Uber arrived. We put the cases in. We hugged again, both conscious that the driver was waiting. I said something. I don't know what. He got in the car. He closed the door. He waved. We blew kisses. The car drove off. I waved. He turned to wave through the back window. And I waved until the car turned the corner. I went inside. I wanted to cry, but I was too numb. I sat in the empty flat. I put on the kettle and made a pot of coffee. I put a load of washing in the machine. I sat at my desk. The coffee was cold. An hour after Oliver's departure, I found three presents he'd left for me. And then I cried. My Year of Bad Sex is written and read by me, Jonathan Izard. Music and studio production are by Andy Mills. My Year of Bad Sex is a protocol production.